Welcome to the State of Developer Education, a podcast by Major League Hacking. We explore how technical leaders are creatively tackling the developer education gap to help prepare the next generation of technologists for the real world and build businesses that can adapt to any changes in the technology ecosystem. I'm your host, John Gottfried. Hi, everyone. Uh, Welcome back to the State of Developer Education. I am your friendly host, John, and I'm so excited to be here today with Trey Botard, who is Developer Advocate at Atomic Financial. How's it going, Trey? It's pretty good. Glad to be here. Awesome, man. Well, it's great to have you here. Um, So I like to start with all of my guests with origin stories. I love hearing how people started out in their careers. So, you know, let's go back in time a little bit, and I'd love to hear your origin story. Yeah, I definitely have a circuitous path into tech. Um, (laughs) I started my career in the restaurant industry as a waiter, worked my way up into a sommelier. So I feel like my educational background kind of started at that point. I did a lot of teaching of customers and staff around what wine is, how to do pairings, that kind of thing. Um, wanted to get out of the restaurant business, went to school and got an associate's degree in architectural management or architectural drafting. Um, so I worked at a large architectural and engineering firm in Austin for two and a half years, um, doing three 3d model management, PDF management, like a whole bunch of kind of back office stuff for them building actually on the tech team, working on data centers. Um, so that was a really interesting job, um, Decided that I wanted to get further into the software itself. Um, I was doing visualizations and simulations and that kind of thing through the 3D man- through the 3D models, and wanted to understand the underlying data and that type of stuff underneath the actual um, the UIs that we used from Autodesk. And decided to go back to school and get a, a computer science degree. So did that. Went to Texas State, got my full degree, and uh, got a job doing tech for um, a consultant firm. Um, and that's how I ended up in North Carolina actually is they had a client here in Greensboro, um, moved up here and started working on the UI of a chatbot of all things. So I did that for a while and the rest is history. Chatbots pre, uh, GPT, I imagine. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It was on Google dialogue flow. It probably still is. I remember that. Um, that's really interesting. So like, why the switch to architecture in the first place? Like, like I understand, you know, you wanted to get out of restaurants, but why was architecture the thing you wanted to get into? That's a good question. So my dad is in construction and I kind of had a, I don't know, when I was a kid, I used to draw like blueprints. <laughs> I was a really nerdy kid. Um, but I always thought that it'd be, what I really wanted to do was understand a good way to model the real world digitally. And I felt like the way that architects did that and the process that they go through to kind of design um, real landscapes and real buildings was fascinating. And so I kind of wanted to get into that so that I could start to do these like simulations and optimizations of the the real world through digital models, because I feel like the iteration process um, that you can unlock using digital models, as opposed to like, you know, you could build a building, but if you don't build it right the first time, there's a lot, there's not really an iteration cycle to try again. So um, that kind of iteration and optimization cycle that you could unlock through digital means was really interesting to me. That's a really, I've never heard 
it really described that way. And it's kind of funny because I feel like when I talk to people who started coding, you know, a, a very long time ago at this point, like 30, 40 years, a lot of them describe their early programming experiences similarly where, uh, sorry, oh, not, 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 not even similarly, like almost like the opposite of what you're saying, where like they had to map everything out on paper because they could only run it once, which like in architecture, obviously you build the building and you're kind of, you know, it's built, it's there, it's structurally uh, finished. Like, has that changed at all how you think about programming? Because obviously in programming, you can iterate all you want and there's very little cost to that. Um, no, I don't think so. I still kind of feel that the iteration cycles are faster than real world, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, I have come to realize that the it's not as easy to rip and replace digitally as I maybe once thought it was, um, especially when you have customers who are depending on solid integrations for building their products. You know, there's kind of a chain that you have to manage as well. So a dependency yeah. chain that I think is also really important to understand and consider when you're making modifications to systems. Hmm. Interesting. Um, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, when you were doing like the, the architecture work, um, like how did you sort of interact with the tooling, right? And the reason I ask that is I know a lot of developers who have sort of gotten started with um, things like 3D animation or like game development by starting with like CAD software, right? Like maybe that's their yeah. first exposure at school and they get more and more advanced into these interactive programs. Like, did you do anything like that? Was the tooling advanced enough? Like, Yeah, so that's actually where I started. So I, in my degree, the associate's program that I did, we started with CAD. Mm -hmm. And then because I was focusing on architecture, we went into a 3D modeling program from Autodesk called uh, Revit which is similar to like game development. And I actually is one of the, one of the things that I did was I figured out at one point that you could export a Revit model into Unity. And hmm. so I took my controller in and was like after work one day running around our like model of the data center, looking at stuff and like jumping around, you know, basically turned it into a, a game. And I actually found a, a mistake in our model that saved us a whole bunch of money in the construction documents phase. So um, that's, that the tooling is really good. The main problem with the architecture industry is how proprietary it all is. There is very little open tooling, open data models. Um, that was one of the problems that I found with Autodesk software is that you cannot get into the underlying data structures. It is all locked down, um, which is honestly holding the industry back to a certain extent. So uh, I used to think that maybe I'd circle back around to the architecture and in in construction industry, but who knows where I'll go from here? We'll see. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah, I feel like we we talk a lot about like all these benefits of open source, right? And a lot of it's from the perspective of developers, but it, it's always interesting to me to hear it from the perspective of like an end user too. Like, like why does it matter to me as a non-programmer in this instance, you know, mm -hmm. whether my software is open or not? And interoperability is probably a big reason for it. Yeah, like going from one software. So a lot of the flows are going from one software to another. So like the architects would use Revit to kind of model out the early stage. And then they'd also use Revit to model out the 
finer levels of detail and make the construction documents. But then you have to take that and then go to another software suite to do all the construction management. And you have to go to another suite to actually manage the documentation. So I did a lot of work in a PDF software called Bluebeam, which was one of the areas where I started tinkering with code. Actually, they had a JavaScript console in Bluebeam and I started messing around with what sort of things you can do with that. Um, but those kind of like flows to do various things with the the information that you're modeling in these softwares were very limited to certain kind of verticals because of the proprietary nature of the software that was being used. What can you do in a JavaScript console for a PDF editor? Like that's very Not a lot. counterintuitive, <laughs> yeah. Not a lot. I definitely, I just tinkered with it, realized that like I didn't know what I was doing and ended up doing like a general assembly coding mm -hmm. course instead. So uh, I didn't get very far with that, but it was an area that I started playing. Yeah. There's definitely a lot of, I don't even know if they're documented or not, but there's a lot of like esoteric APIs that people play around with that don't have DevRel teams, right? Or don't have anyone thinking about the developer experience. They almost exist just as like a byproduct of the software. Mm -hmm. um, but the, so many pieces of software have that, especially desktop apps that mm -hmm. uh, I could imagine like a whole like series of content that's just like about tinkering with weird esoteric pieces of software from a developer's perspective. Um, it's it's yeah. kind of cool. Like I, whenever I like find one of those things, it's like a little Easter egg, you know, in, in the experience. I would love to see like some interesting use cases and like solutions that people have found within the Bluebeam JavaScript console to like do all sorts of crazy stuff. Yeah. But yeah. Sure I never found anything. <laughs> yeah. So um, once you got into engineering, right, uh, what was it that, that drew you to DevRel? Yeah, so throughout my career, when when I was working, I would think back on like where I had come, like what my path had been so far. And the things that I enjoyed the most were sharing of knowledge. So when I was a sommelier, one of my favorite parts was doing like staff trainings and like teaching people about where wine came from and the types of wine and what, why the flavors were what they were for various things. And then whenever I was doing the architecture stuff, a large part of my job was teaching engineers who had started their career, literally hand drafting, like how, and then had moved into CAD. And so had gotten used to using spreadsheets and static documents inside of AutoCAD. What sort of, um, kind of flows could be unlocked when you use a three-dimensional model and the like efficiencies that you gain by developing and, and building in that way. Um, same thing with the PDF software and with um, one of the other product suites we used, I became kind of the go-to guy for like the power user, if you will, for those softwares. And then whenever I was at Volvo, Similarly, I became kind of the go-to person for like Office 365 and how to like build out a Teams team and how to use Teams to unlock various flows that we were doing with Volvo um, and with Azure. I did a bunch of presentations on Azure DevOps and using DevOps in general for people who had never thought about a CI/CD pipeline before, but had worked in tech for 20, 25 years. Um, so bringing kind of newer technology to people who had a lot of experience and like knew a lot of stuff and domain knowledge, but maybe weren't as familiar with kind of some of the new cutting edge ways of working and ways to get things done has been a thing that 
has been a highlight in my career, but also just something that I've enjoyed the most. And so I was working as a consultant, uh, building like a CSV API or something. And I was like, and a, a job popped up at a local meetup that I'm in here in Winston uh, for a DevRel at a, a small startup here. And I was like, I'm going to throw out an application and see what happens. That's something that I've been thinking about. I've been thinking about doing content creation, writing blogs, creating videos and tutorial walkthroughs because I really enjoyed doing like the DevOps presentation that I did. And I wanted to do that professionally. Um, and it stuck. I got the job and started my career into DevRel. And yeah, that was the last job that I had and still doing it. I still really like it. So I think it's a, as I get more into it, I feel like it's an incredibly valuable piece of the like software company puzzle. Um, being able to optimize your product internally is super valuable. Building out, like having a product team and building out features and, you know, doing the work that software engineers do is super valuable, but there's, a point where you have to sell that and you have to make it valuable for other people and teach other people how to use your software. And if that piece is missing, you can build all the features you want. If nobody knows how to use it, did you really build that feature? You know, it's the, did, if a tree falls in a forest and nobody hears it, did anybody, did it actually fall thing? If a product team builds a feature and nobody knows that it exists, did they really build that feature? And are they just spinning their wheels and wasting their time and money? So I really enjoy being, being in DevRel and the more I do it, the more valuable I find it. Yeah. That's a really interesting perspective though, of like seeing it as a vehicle for product adoption and iteration, right? Like, like I think it's a little bit of a different spin from a lot of developer marketing stuff that I, I commonly run into. Um, but, but I want to go back for a second. You were talking a little bit about like, almost like the crossover of IT and software, right? Like you were the technical person on these teams. And so you, out of necessity, were like teaching people about all the, this new tooling and even like not programming, right? Like Office 365 and right. you know, kind of like system setup. Um, I'm curious like what, what you saw when you were doing that, because, you know, in most big organizations, like, IT, like the person who configures your laptop and software engineering are totally separate and often like siloed off from each other. Um, but I remember back to when I was starting out, like I had a lot of jobs where I was like writing code and also setting up people's computers. Um, like, what did you learn from doing that? Like, what, what did that teach you about DevRel? Um, how to position the value proposition, I think. So especially in some of the older companies, there's a lot of people don't like change, especially when they've been in the same job for 15 years, doing the same thing over and over and over. They don't want some new hotshot coming in there, revamping the way that they do their work. But if you can approach it empathetically and see the problems that they may not realize they're having and show them the value that using some piece of tech can unlock for them and make their lives better, that moment when the like light bulb goes off and they realize that, like, hey, we can use a Teams channel as opposed to like one-off Skype messaging people through an on-prem Skype version. What else can we do? You know, and oh, I can share videos through this platform. I can create a quick little screen capture and show someone how to do this. Like there's a lot of, I think that's really what um, kind of sold me on the the value proposition of not necessarily DevRel necessarily, but 
how to solve people problems with tech um, and understanding how to be empathetic to like the position that someone is in and not waste their time, but at the same time, understand that you have something that is useful. And if you aren't successful at selling that to them, then you're not really helping them at all. So that, I think that informs my DevRel activities now too, quite a bit. Yeah, that, that's, that's fantastic. Um, it seems like a lot of those DevRel activities have revolved around like documentation, right? Which is one form of, of teaching and educating. Um, as you've been building out docs now at, you know, a couple of companies, what are some of the like guiding principles that you've developed um, over time? Yeah. So Atomic is my second DevRel job. Um, both places, docs have been, a, I've spent the majority of my time working on the documentation systems. Um, that is because if they are not in good shape, the rest of your activities are practically pointless. If your documentation is not easy to use, easily understandable, easy to grip, like all of your marketing activities are practically in vain because you'll you'll do all these top of funnel activities. You'll get all these new users. They'll come to your documentation system, try and figure out how your software works, not understand what you're talking about and leave. So like, why did you do all these marketing things if the content that you have in place to inform your users how to use your software, you're just spinning your wheels. And so I kind of feel like the docs has become the most important part of the developer experience. And that's where I've started. And it just takes a lot of time because there's a lot there. So when I got to Flurry, the documentation system was this hand-rolled vanilla JavaScript thing um, that had a lot of acronyms. There was no like flows through it. Um, it was really difficult to understand. And so that was the first thing I tackled was we got to make this much more user-friendly um, and just kind of showcase the value that our tools have so that people can understand them and then use them in their, in their work. Um, as far as kind of my philosophy around documentation systems, I think a lot of it comes back to information architecture. Um, because that is so vital, the UX of documentation is the DX of documentation. So um, I'm a pretty firm believer in the diataxis framework. I don't know if you're familiar with that or not, but um, you'll start to see it everywhere. So it kind of collapses down into four quadrants of organizing your documentation. And the quadrants revolve around the stage of the developer journey that a developer's in when they're approaching your documentation. So for example, one of the quadrants is tutorials. So whenever you're very first getting, you know, kicking the tires for a piece of tech, you want to get started. I just want to spin it up in a CLI really quickly and play around with it real fast. Um, so you want to segment that part of the documentation into its own area. Um, your API reference, you basically want that to be on a monitor while you're building. So it almost needs to be just a long list that you can command F into and find what you're looking for and then use that to understand what it is that you, what parameters you need to pass into the API and what you're going to get back. And so that is a much, that's kind of another one of the quadrants. Um, what's the other one? Get started tutorials. I can't remember what the, the second one is. Guides. So, okay. This is another one that I'm working on right now. So 
having, so you've got your tutorials, you've got your get started. So that is kind of like an early learning. You got your API reference, which is while I'm, I'm in the mode of I'm building with your software. Okay. So I build out the first POC or whatever. The next thing that you're going to want to be able to do is have these like narrowly scoped, clearly delineated, like I'm starting here. I want to end there guides for like, how do I take this and deploy it to AWS or, you know, how do I make a GitHub action, do what I want it to do to, you know, something like that. So there's by sort of segmenting your documentation into the, these various quadrants, it sort of focuses the way that the, those pieces of content are structured and kind of lends itself to the, the structure of the site overall and the wayfinding that you can put between all the pieces um, and your external entry points. So like on your marketing site, if you've got someone that is a PM and they're just kind of kicking the tires, you don't want to send them to your like opinion piece in the documentation about like why we structured the data model that we structured. Someone may be interested in your product and wants to get into that. And that may be an area that you'd want to surface in your docs, but you're not going to want to kick them into the API reference necessarily, or into a like super narrowly scoped guide, you're going to want to have them see the get started and get the overall picture of like, how difficult is this going to be to implement for my product team? Um, and so that's kind of where the way that I approach the information architecture and kind of how I've segmented out the sort of Jira stories for what I'm going to build next and what needs to be fixed and how I've designed the sort of site map of the doc sites that I've worked with. Um, but now that I've mentioned those four quadrants, you will start to see them everywhere. You'll see the guides, like the Gatsby docs was the one that I kind of used as like the, as an example, when I was pitching this at Flurry to show people like, here's literally the four quadrants. They are like headers or they're sub nav headers on the page itself that goes into the various pieces that we're talking about this. They did a very good job of kind of like mapping the diataxis framework directly into their, their docs in a very, um, well-designed way, I thought. How do you measure whether or not the docs are doing what you think they are, right? Because I think conceptually, we can all understand like good docs, you know, help developers get up to speed faster. Maybe they reduce churn, like whatever else. But how do you like quantitatively assess that? It's definitely more of a qualitative thing. Um, mostly through the volume of questions I get around the pieces of content I put out in the docs. So if I'm able to clearly articulate in a well-discoverable place some piece of content that I'm working on um, in the docs, and all of a sudden I was getting a bunch of questions about this particular area, and now I'm not, then I've been successful. There's not really... Yeah, I, I don't know that there's a quantitative way to necessarily measure that um, other than just kind of like product adoption and then support load, <laughs> basically. It's kind of like product adoption goes up, support load goes down, docs must be doing what they're supposed to be doing. Um, so yeah, there's I don't know that I have a, a good answer for that other than anecdotal. Yeah, I mean, volume of support is kind of a quantitative metric, right? Like if you are... If you had a certain behavior before and that behavior goes away because the docs improve, you know, that's a that's a one one lens you could look at it through. Um like 
one thing I've always kind of like noticed and, and been curious about is you want to reduce questions, right? Like you want people to be able to get up to speed on their own without having to engage support. But I also feel like a lot of really good docs sometimes lead to questions. And what I mean by that is like, as you get in deeper, perhaps you don't need the 101 level support anymore. But now you have a question about how this specific guide approached a particular problem. Like I remember when I used to write tutorials, you know, I would get people tweeting at me asking these like esoteric questions about like, you used Rails 3.2. Like, how do I get it to run on Rails 4.1? And that was like another interesting signal of like, oh, people are engaging with this. They're using it. They're like thinking critically about it. And I never really found a good way to measure that personally, but it was another like interesting qualitative signal of just like the questions that people had after reading my docs were a signal that people were reading them in the first place. Yeah. And one of the things that we've done at Atomic is uh, used mixed panel to kind of mm -hmm. start to build out flows. So if we have this like kind of flow in mind of I'm going to start here in the documentation and then I'm going to end up, you know, here, can I map that and see where people are falling out in the sort of flow of in mixed panel? Um, there's still some work that we need to do around that to really flesh that out. But that's one of the ways that we've started measuring as well as like, are people clicking the copy to copy button for code snippets? Yeah. Um, that type of thing. How do you make sure your docs are up to date? And, and, and I'd like to split this off like docs and also guides, which tend to be a little bit more prose or like, you know, uh, less generatable, right? Hmm. Um, that is the never ending question. <laughs> um, lots of testing. So one of the, I talked to uh, one of the DevRels from Stripe and he brought up the notion of like being customer zero. And hmm. I think that that's a really interesting uh, place for a DevRel to be is like, I am the first person to try and build a product with the tooling that we're providing to our customers. And so by going through um, both the docs and the product itself and finding like doing a friction log of the areas where I'm getting stuck is a, a good way to, to ensure that the docs are accurate. Um, Keeping them up to date is, I think, more, so I wrote a little bit about this whenever, whenever I was going through the questions you sent me, but it's kind of a people problem. It's kind of a culture problem. So if you've got a product team that is off in a corner, just throwing features out as fast as they can get through them and not communicating what they're doing ahead of time or why they're doing it, but, you know, keeping everybody one up to speed, it's really difficult to sure. make sure that your docs are, are accurate, especially those kind of handmade guides and things that can't be automated. Um, so like we could automate a change log all we want, but all of the tertiary content around that is not going to be updated unless someone who's responsible for updating it knows that it changed. Sure. Um, so being involved and embedded in the product teams, having really good communication mechanisms for the work that those teams are doing um, is vital. And that even goes out to like the marketing teams. How do the marketing and sales sales and marketing teams know that it, we've released a new feature unless someone tells them? They're not going to be digging through the docs. Right. And so I feel like the docs is 
being out of sync is kind of the canary in the coal mine for the rest of the, the teams in your company not being made aware of the features that your product teams are releasing. Um, mm. It kind of hints at a, a deeper cultural problem that needs to be solved. And it's a communication one more than a technical one. Interesting. Have you seen any good QA processes for that? Like, like, is it part of your engineering roadmap? Is it part of your like release, you know, checklist? Like, how do you actually like work through that? We're working on that right now. <laughs> We're trying to like ideate on that and find solutions for, for that very problem. It's a difficult one to solve. And I think the solutions are going to be different in every environment that you're in, how you go about um, managing this particular problem will be different depending on the team structure, the org structure, um, the individual engineers themselves. Um, it's part of the pushback that I've heard is that you're introducing friction into the pipeline for development teams. And while I understand that at some point, a little bit of friction is necessary to ensure that all of the like non- product engineering teams are kept up to speed. So I feel like there's a, a, a trade-off that has to be made there for speed to market with, you know, it's kind of that thing, like if you build a product and no one knows that it exists, did you really build that product? You know, someone may come across it as they're like poking around, but that's not really a value add if, you know, you're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars to develop that feature and someone just happens to come across it and that's the only people that are using it. So yeah. Do you report into marketing or, or engineering or what? I'm under engineering. Um, but I also, I part of what I like about DevRel too, and is a, a source of like, I call it bird brain, but a lot of like kind of all over the place and context switching is the fact that like I touch every department in my company. I work with the customer success team directly. I work with the sales team directly. I work with the marketing team directly. Um, but I report to engineering. So I also work with them directly. And I think the part of engineering that I work with is much more around the feature marketing, um, the documentation system, and then kind of the like build and release processes that we're, we're building out for that as well. So I like that, but it also makes for very difficult time management. <laughs> yeah. It feels like DevRel folks are constantly revisiting how to justify their existence. And I've heard, you know, conflicting opinions about like, should they be in product? Should they be in engineering? Should they be in marketing? Should there be a totally independent reporting chain that's just DevRel focused? And I'm curious, like you being as part of the engineering org, like what are you measured by? Like, is it, uh, are they engineering metrics? Are they marketing metrics? Like, how do you actually think about like, your existence within Atomic? Yeah, that's a that's a big question I've been thinking about a lot lately. Um, and it almost depends on two things. The strength of the, the DevRel, like is this a person who is much better at public speaking or is this someone who is much more comfortable in a CLI, like banging out some dev tooling? Mm -hmm. um, and how you, I think that is important, but then also how you're going to measure success for the role that that person is trying to achieve. So like, Someone working on the documentation, you know, making some cool widget on the doc site, um, the success for them is going to be measured very different than the person who is out there creating content for the for the marketing folks to to use. Mm -hmm. So uh, it depends on the value proposition for where DevRel sits 
within the overall org. Um, so for right now, the fact that I'm in engineering makes the most sense. I, I'm embedded in the customer experience team. Mm -hmm. And so the way that my success is measured currently is like how much friction in the like onboarding process is there, how, how easily are our customers able to get up and running and out the door and paying us money. Um, but I could also see a world where like, as that changes, where I sit could make less sense. So it, it's another one of those kind of culture things and and where, what the company needs. So like right now, the most important thing for us is making, is iterating on our doc site and making sure that we have good support for our customers who are actively implementing our product. Um, so kind of being embedded with sales a little bit, mostly with engineering, building out some of these pipelines for release notes and change logs and feature marketing is pretty important. Um, I don't think there's a one, there's not a silver bullet for, for our answer for this question. Um, I think it's very org dependent. I would love to see DevRel be its own kind of pillar because the metrics for success are very different from most of the other um, organizations, but I could almost see a case where like, say DevRel is its own sort of thing and they have people embedded in each of the different areas. So having a sales engineer on the DevRel team makes sense. Having someone who's purely responsible for content creation or events and community being under marketing makes sense. Having someone who's building dev tooling in engineering makes sense. And, you know, CICD pipelines and kind of working on that stuff. So yeah, it's a nebulous question with lots of variations on how to answer it, but I think trying to solve it and having good communication with the leaders of your company is important to, to figuring out what their expectations for what they want you to do is. Mm -hmm. um, because if you're misaligned with what they think you're supposed to be doing, then you got some real problems. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> making sure that you're meeting expectations, I think is, is extremely valuable as well. Yeah, hundred percent. And you know, it's one of those endlessly debated questions, I think in part because of what you said, which is that there is no one size fits all. You yeah. know, I think that everyone is looking at, uh, how other organizations structure it, but then you kind of have to build it from scratch no matter what. Um, yeah. So it makes sense. Uh, I'm curious, like, you know, Atomic um, being a, a fintech, you know, sort of, I, I don't know if I want to call it a fintech platform, fintech adjacent platform. How, how would you describe it? We're a payroll API. Um, so I, it's a fintech. I feel like it fits within the fintech space. We're definitely not like a financial institution. Um, yeah. We're a, an API integrator. So yeah, FinTech platform kind of makes sense to me. Cool. So with that in mind, are there any like notable differences uh, of working in DevRel in a space where like privacy, security, regulations are, are much more of a concern than like, you know, if you're, I don't know, like pulling restaurants from a map API, right? Right. Uh, yeah, so it has been a stark difference. So Flurry is this like sort of Web3 adjacent, open core, open community, very like it's a dev tool. And coming to an API product in the fintech space where like NDAs rule all um, has been, has posed some interesting challenges. I think the biggest one has been around community management and how do you go about managing the community how do you talk to everyone at the same time um so when 
none of them want the other ones to know that they are working with you. <laughs> you know, it's a very tricky, spiky problem because, um, yeah, all, all of our competitors, all of our customers are competitors with each other and they take it very seriously. Um, not to mention that our competitors are, we're in a very competitive market. I will say that. So, um, ensuring that we're not putting too much into the public sphere is very important. And I feel like that's, uh, equally as important for our customers. So how do you have a community that can work within those parameters has been something I've been thinking a lot about. Um, you know, we, when I was at Flurry, I moved us from an open Slack into an open discord. And that process was really eye-opening, um, at, Atomic, it's our community is managed much more customer by customer. Like no one's gonna just on the weekend build a, a, a product against the Atomic API, you know. So how do we does an open community make sense? You know, what does the customer journey look like? Is there a beginning and end for their time with Atomic and understanding like what is the value add that I can put when they onboard in the middle of while they're building? you know, as they're scaling and then like, what does the kind of off ramp or maybe scale down look like for their, their, their journey with us, um, has been a really interesting problem to think through, um, and figuring out how to navigate those waters within the, the org itself. So making ways to like broadcast channels, we don't really have a great solution for communicate having two-way communications with all of our community at once right. um we have a lot of kind of connected slack channels and then like email communications and newsletters um that does not lend itself very well to like open community um mm -hmm. so figuring out if that's a value proposition that we need to build out or not a value proposition but is that uh you know something that is that a space that we need to build for our community or not has been something that i've been working through because it doesn't really fit for our company, but mm -hmm. finding ways to minimize the downsides of the state that we're in and play to the strengths of like having the segmented community has also been um, eye-opening, I think. Yeah, it is really interesting. Like, I, I mean, yeah, it does feel like the big question is, do you even need a developer community? Because it's like, right most APIs kind of get to a point where there's like a many to many relationship between the users of their platform. And, you know, for you guys, it's, it's kind of like a one to many, right. And, yeah. you know, there's, I've been spending a lot of time recently, like talking to folks at, you know, banks and like financial institutions about open source. Right. And it's kind of a foreign concept for a lot of the reasons you described, but it's gaining a lot of steam, I think, because it, you know, uh, there's a lot of efficiencies and, and gains you can get from leveraging other people's work. But it's really, really difficult to talk about. And so often what I see is like developers working on things and not necessarily describing how they relate into their actual proprietary work, but like it's sort of alluded to. And, you know, there's still a lot of the sharing and cross-company education, but, like, not in a very blatant way. It's very, like, odd, but 
the same behaviors seem to still exist, right? Like developers still like to talk to one another about what they are doing at the end of the day. Um, right. Whether or not that manifests in you sharing how you're using a particular piece of technology is a totally different question. <laughs> yeah. And like the shared problem solving, I think, is one of the most important aspects of community. Yeah. Um, and and the value proposition that one of our customers or a developer in a community gets from being part of that community. Um, the aspect of, you know, like being involved in the the Next.js community or mm -hmm. the React community and using that as a resume booster and a way to like kind of signal that you're proficient in some technology doesn't necessarily exist for a company like Atomic. So that value proposition of community sort of goes away over time. You know, you're yeah. not going to put on your resume that I integrated with Atomic. That's just not, it doesn't mean anything to anybody really, unless you're going to another financial institution who's looking to do the same thing. So yep. whether or not our community would value having a more open community is something that I've been weighing and trying to figure out where that balance is lately. Mm -hmm. So zooming out a little bit, um, I'm curious, like who, who are the tech, you know, creators, educators, um, you know, content creators that you look up to outside of uh, Apollo or, or, sorry, God, not Apollo. Atomic. Okay, let me rephrase that. Um, <laughs> I was like, Apollo Atomic? Why am I going there? Okay. Um, zooming out a little bit, who are some of the, uh, you know, content creators or tech educators that you look up to outside of Atomic? Yeah, so some of the ones that I pay the most attention to, I really like what Lee Robb at Vercel is doing. Mm. Um, also, Sarah Drasner, she's in a kind of similar sort of position, sort of pinnacle of DevRel and like worked her way up to being like a a, a leader in the space. Yeah. Um, as far as like finger on the pulse of the tech community, I really like Cassie Dew and Swix. Yep. Um, I follow them pretty closely. Um, for like visual content, I think Maggie Appleton is unreal. Like the stuff she puts out is just beautiful and the UX and just kind of like experience that she creates and the content she puts out is excellent. And then someone who's kind of tech adjacent that I, I like a lot is Marie Poulin. She's a Notion creator. So she does, she has like a Notion mastery course and she put out a lot of um, YouTube videos back in the day for like, how to use Notion and build really fascinating things with Notion and really leverage the platform to get a lot of value out of it. Um, so I watched a lot of her stuff whenever I was first kicking the tires with Notion and understanding what this type of technology could do. Um, as far as tech content creators, I think Fireship.io is probably one of my favorites. Um, mm -hmm. His like 100 seconds of whatever has been really cool. Um, and I think the he in my mind kind of revolutionized screen sharing code like the the methodology he uses to actually screen capture what's happening on his screen i think changed the way a lot of people screen capture um i don't know if you you've noticed i'm not before. familiar like what what about it so the way that he he put out a video about this but the way that he does it instead of like sitting there typing and waiting for his you know cursor to finish the end of the sentence he will write out a code snippet and then delete sections at a time and then command z his way back through it so it kind of plays back pieces of of the code kind of in a sequential manner and i just thought that that was 
genius. <laughs> like um, no one wants to watch you type. No one yeah. wants it to just all of a sudden, you know, the whole thing appear because then you can't read it all. But this, this kind of like, as he's talking through the piece of code that he's working through and showing you how, how to use it, it kind of like uncovers little bits along the path. And I, I think it's really cool. Um, awesome. Yeah. Those are probably some of the ones that I pay the most attention to. Great. Um, to, to go in kind of another like big picture direction, you know, you mentioned you did some GA courses, you went back to school for computer science, like thinking back on it, like what would you want to see change about how developers are, are educated right now? That's a tough question. Um, for new developers, I feel like tutorial hell is a real thing, you know, get just what do you mean by that? the overwhelming amount of content and knowing where to start and knowing, understanding what the end goal is for what you're trying to accomplish and how can I market that to get a job is just, I can't imagine going through that, um, personally again. Um, part, that's part of the reason that I went back to school is I knew that I needed structured curriculum mm -hmm. to be able to like, get me from point A to point B. And I think that that's something that is helpful. I think that that's a personal thing though. I don't know that that's as broadly applicable. Um, you know, some people learn in vastly different ways than others. And I like a very structured, um, way of doing lots of things, not just learning stuff, but, um, so yeah, uh, I think one of the things that I find the most interesting is the something kind of like a Udacity Nano degree, where it's like kind of outcome oriented, where it says this is the piece of like the tech world that I'm going to specialize in or learn now and like have a validated um, bit of understanding that I can show to the world. I think that that's a really, if I was going to start over, that was probably where I would go is some credentialed outcome oriented learning course that I can show at the end of the day so that I can prove my um, expertise in that area. And I think more of that would be useful just to kind of guide new people. And honestly, you know, people who are already in tech, if they want to pivot or learn some new piece of something, um, that would be useful. I think for, for that type of stuff to really be valuable, recruiters need to know that that exists. Mm -hmm. So like, say you work at a marketing agency and, you know, you are aware of some like static site, UI oriented design aspected um, learning course, you could pay attention to graduates from that program because they are going to fit very well into the type of developers that you're going to want to be onboarding into your, your agency versus yeah. someone who's building like a web app. You're probably not going to want as many new people you're going to want to be paying attention to people who have a little bit more uh, in-depth expertise and, you know, the computer science underneath the, the application itself. So, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, awesome. Well, thank you so much, uh, Trey. I really appreciated everything you shared and, and I, I learned a lot. Um, the question I always like to end on with folks is kind of just like a fun self-reflective question of, you know, is there any like aspirational figure in tech or or DevRel or even science I've heard from people that you would just love to take to lunch and pick their brain for a couple hours? Um, honestly, probably Lee Rob. I think I, 
I see a lot of where I want to go career-wise in what he does. And I would love to like, just pick his brain about how his journey, where he started, how he got where he is and understand kind of his view of the world, um, view of the tech world. And just, I feel like that we have a lot of things in common. So I'd love to to talk to him about that kind of stuff. Awesome. I, I love that. Uh, well, Thank you again. Um, if people want to find your work, where, where are the best places online to, to track down what you're working on? Um, I'm pretty active on Twitter. Um, so at Trey Botard's a good one. Um, due to the nature of fintech, LinkedIn has become a necessity. So I'm relatively active on LinkedIn as well. Um, those are probably the two best places to kind of branch out to my other areas. So Twitter and LinkedIn. Awesome. Well, thank you again. Um, I hope everyone enjoyed uh, listening. Uh, if you want to hear more, definitely like and subscribe. We'll be publishing episodes um, on an ongoing basis. And uh, happy hacking, everyone. The State of Developer Education is brought to you by Major League Hacking or MLH. To find out more about MLH and how we power innovation, cultivate developer communities, and teach technical skills to students around the world, visit mlh.io. And then make sure to search for developer education in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Don't forget to like and review the show, and we'll give you a shout out on a future episode. On behalf of the team here at MLH, thanks for listening and helping us empower the next generation of technologists. Happy hacking.